0: This morning in our series in Matthew, we come to the purpose of Matthew. We come to that purpose as we move into the final section of the Gospel, chapters 26, 27, and 28. We enter la via dolorosa, the Latin for the way of suffering. This is the most significant section in the whole Gospel because its focus is on the cross of Christ. One could say that everything up to this point is only prologue. It's only introduction. This is the main theme. This is the main event. This is the purpose of the whole revelation of God, the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the high point of Matthew's gospel, the culmination of redemptive history. It's the greatest event in the history of the world. The greatest source of hope in the heart of any man or woman who ever lived, the cross of Jesus Christ. We can't have Christianity without the cross of Christ. It's the focal point. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. My wife and I were in the Ivory Coast as international workers. You know that we built a good friendship with a couple of Lebanese Muslim guys, and they would invite us to their different homes of their relatives. And one evening, they they invited us to go along with them. When we did, and uh, I had a fascinating conversation with one of their brothers, and we were talking about the similarities between Islam and Christianity, and. The conversation came to the end when he said, you know what? We are, we, are so, we are almost the same. The only difference is the cross. Yes, that is the difference. The cross is the epitome of saving truth. We see it all the way through Scripture. You start way back in the Old Testament. We see it foreshadowed in the acceptable sacrifices Abel, Cain and Abel. It's foreshadowed in the ark of safety that saved Noah and his family. It's foreshadowed in the sacrifice provided on Mount Moriah, a ram in the place of Isaac. It's foreshadowed in the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, where Moses said, The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. We see it in the rock that Moses struck with his staff in the wilderness that brought forth water to quench the thirst of the people. We see the cross foreshadowed in the Levitical religious practices, the ceremonies, sacrifices, and offerings. We see it foreshadowed in the serpent lifted up in the desert for healing. We see it even in the man Boaz, called the kinsman redeemer. We see the cross detailed in Psalm 22 and in Isaiah 53 that we read. We see the pierced and wounded Savior in Zechariah chapter 12, all the way through Scripture pointing to the cross. And then we hear John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, pointing to Jesus and saying, Behold, there he is, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. All of the Old Testament Scripture and all of the prophetic ministry of John the Baptist points to the cross, and then we come to the cross, and all the gospel writers and the writers of the epistles, the the letters following the gospels, write about the cross because it is the focal point of everything. Christianity is more than anything else a belief in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the main truth, the most relevant truth of the Christian faith. And so we come now to the greatest truth ever told, the greatest section of this gospel of Matthew. And in these final three chapters, it's interesting, Matthew breaks up the narrative of the cross uh, into some very clear, distinct sections. In chapter 26 that we begin this morning, uh, we'll see the preparation for the cross and the arrest of Jesus. Chapter 27, we'll see the trials of Christ, His execution, and His burial. And then finally, in chapter 28, we come to the resurrection, to Easter Sunday, and then His final instructions to His disciples. This morning, as we begin the movement toward the cross here in chapter 26, I want us to look at the first 16 verses, Matthew 26. And what we find is a preparation for the death of Jesus Christ. Uh, seen actually from four different perspectives. Now verse one reminds us of something. It says when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, Now this is referring to everything um, that that Jesus had just finished talking about in chapters twenty four and twenty five, when they were up on the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse, his powerful last teaching to his disciples about his own second coming. And you remember that Jesus is in his final week on the earth. And this is Wednesday. Our passage is still Wednesday of that week. And what, a, what amazing, what a Wednesday it's been. In fact, in our study, that one day has taken us five months. That Wednesday covers chapter 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, and here we're in, starting in 26 and we're still on Wednesday. Talk about eventful. You'll remember that it was on Sunday before that Jesus arrived in Bethany, his last time into Jerusalem. Then on Sunday, while he was in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, a great multitude came to him, and he taught them and, and ministered to, the, to them. Um, um, and then... Um, Excuse me. That was on Sunday. On Monday he got, he got on the colt to ride on into Jerusalem to the hosannas of the people. And they were yelling out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The praises of the people as they, they threw palm branches and garments on, on the path on his way in. And it was on that Monday that he was hailed as a Messiah and he went into the temple and then he returned back to Bethany. Then on Tuesday, the same week, he came back into the city, cursed a fig tree on the way in. You remember that. And then went to the temple and he cleansed it, throwing out all the money changers and all the vendors that were there. And having cleansed it on Tuesday, he came back on Wednesday in the morning. And since it was now a cleansed temple, he could begin teaching. And he began teaching there. And you remember that as he began to teach the multitudes, he ran into conflict with the religious leaders. And the whole conflict began to unfold way back in chapter 21 and and 22 and finally reached its culmination in chapter 23 when he pronounced a series of curses on the religious leaders and all of their people. Then towards the evening of Wednesday, he climbed up to the Mount of Olives with his disciples, sat down, began to unfold to them the amazing events that were to come for his second coming. And it's still Wednesday when it's late Wednesday evening as we Start into chapter 26, and he's finished teaching them about the future, and he brings them back to reality about the present. Verse 2, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Now, he's been telling of his victorious, powerful all-encompassing return and the king of kings is going to sit on his throne and judge and rule forever but first he says i've got to be crucified and die can you imagine what's happening to the brains of the disciples it's called the exploding head syndrome (laughs) all this stuff sounds crazy It, it doesn't add up in their minds how can this be the king of kings I'm coming back as a king, but right now, it's time for the cross. And this is the fourth and last time in the Gospel of Matthew that he tells, him, tells them about what's going to take place. And each time, it just doesn't seem to compute, or, or they just, I don't want to think about that. It's hard to grasp, but reality is about to step in, set, set, uh, set in very, very quickly here. As we prepare to understand the death of Christ, Matthew gives us four perspectives. We'll see the plan of God work out in his sovereign design. Then we'll look at the hatred of the Jewish leaders. Then the loving adoration of worship and worship of those who love Christ and follow Christ. And then the terrible betrayal of Judas. And all of this has to blend together somehow. God master plans all these different things so that the death of Christ comes at exactly the right moment. So first of all, we're going to see the preparation of Christ's death by God's sovereign design. And he says here again in verse 2, as you know, Jesus is speaking, the Passover is in two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Now people have written books such as a book entitled The Passover Plot, Saying, well, you know, Jesus was a well-meaning revolutionary whose revolution went went sour and he wound up getting himself killed. That's not <laughs> the case. He was on a divine timetable. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He had already predicted three times that he would go to Jerusalem, die and rise again. And here he says, in two days, it's going to happen. Throughout the Old Testament, this event is foretold in a lot of detail. It's no accident. There are no coincidences. There are no happen chances when it comes to God. It's sovereign direction by God. He is on a divine timetable. Now, Jesus always moved through the planned timetable for his life, never missing a step anywhere along the line. And remember what he said in John ten eighteen: No one... No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority. Remember at the end of Matthew, God the Father gave me all authority. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father, saying my Father gave me that authority. And then over in chapter 19, Jesus is in front of Pilate, we'll be seeing that down the road here a little bit, and thinking that, he's, uh, thinking that he's all that, he says, do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate is speaking. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. He's kind of saying, you puny little stupid man, <laughs> you've got no control over my life. Or my death, even if you are the governor, no one has any control over my death except the sovereign God. In fact, there were so many attempts to take his life that it's ludicrous to to assume that Jesus had uh, just had a revolution go bad. Remember that the very first attempt on his life, remember when that was? That was when he was born. Right after he was born, when Herod massacred all the babies under two years of age, he was, he was trying, to, trying to get rid of the one that was prophesied to be the king of the Jews. And he was saved by being taken away from that place in time by, by divine intervention, by the angel that told Mary and Joseph, you just of here and then head out for a little while. Then there was a time in Nazareth when he was ministering in the synagogue, that when he was beginning his ministry among his own people who knew him really well. Because he grew up there and he opened the, the scroll of Isaiah and read from the prophecy about the Messiah who was to come. And then he claimed the title of the Messiah. Basically said, that's me. I'm here. And the leaders in the crowd were so incensed that they took him to a cliff to throw him off. How easy would that, that have been? Just bop him off. In some way God must have parted the crowd like he parted the Red Sea. And says Jesus just walked through him and walked away. There are examples after examples of these instances. In John chapter 8, Jesus proclaimed his equality with God when he says, if you knew me, you would know my father also. In their eyes, that was blasphemy, definitely a reason to kill him. The next verse says he spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put, yet no one seized him. Why? Because, the Holy Spirit says through John, his hour had not yet come. God was not going to allow that. All of these so-called attempts to take his life were unsuccessful because, because it was not God's timing. It wasn't God's timetable. But now it is. Now it is, and if ever there was a time when the Jews wouldn't want that to happen, it was right now during the Passover. But this is the time that God wanted it. The Jews didn't want it because there were so many people in town. They, they wouldn't be able to do it quietly. They, they wanted to do this in secret, just a way. So they didn't want to raise any, any rabble-rousing. And according to the Jewish historian Josephus, at one Passover season, in a census that was taken, 256,500 lambs were slain. One Passover time. That's a quarter million lambs killed in Jerusalem. And Josephus says the law was that there could be no less than 10 people for each lamb because no one was to eat Passover alone. So if you have a minimum of 10 people for a quarter million lambs, you've got a minimum of 2,500,000 people in and around Jerusalem. Jerusalem many of whom were from Galilee, who had been listening to Jesus' teaching, who, who had been healed by Jesus, who had seen all of his miracles, and they were pro-Jesus. This would have been the worst time from the standpoint of the Jewish leaders. So it had nothing to do with it, their, their plans for when Jesus was going to die. In fact, in verse, uh, verses three and five of our passage, it tells us: Then the chief priests and elders of the people assembled in the in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, but not during the festival. They said, "Not now, or there may be a riot among the people." They knew. But God chose this time when all the Jews would be celebrating their Passover, when lambs were being slain by the thousands, Jesus would be, the, the, uh, be offered as the Lamb of God. Talk about perfect timing. What a coincidence, right? <laughs> no coincidence. The sovereign God had planned that the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world would be sacrificed On Passover, when the lambs that couldn't take away the sin were all being sacrificed. That was the unchangeable plan of God. In fact, in Luke chapter 22, verse 22, it says, The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. As it has been decreed. In Acts 2, 23, we read, This man, speaking of Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. When John the Baptist pointed Jesus out to his disciples, he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Even way back in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 53, we hear the prophecy about a lamb, a lamb who was taken to slaughter, a lamb upon whom was laid the iniquity of us all, a lamb who said not a word as a, as a sheep before his shears is silent. It was all in God's plan way before. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul describes him as Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Again, in Revelation 13, 8, the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. That kind of boggles your mind, doesn't it? From the creation of the world. It was already a fait accompli. Why? Because as Peter puts it, you... Uh, in 1 Peter 1, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from our, your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. It's the only way possible. So he's always been the lamb, and he must die on the Passover as the Passover lamb. And though it wasn't the will of men, it was the will of God, and he will change the will of men to accomplish his purposes. So we see then in verse 2, the preparation as God, in, uh, as God in his sovereign design plans the event of the death of his son, Jesus. And while Jesus is sharing with his disciples what God's plan for him is, for the cross, there was another planning session going on. And we'll call this the preparation of scheming hate. The preparation of scheming hate. In verse 3, chapter 26 of Matthew, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. So that same Wednesday night, the Sanhedrin has called a special meeting at the palace of Caiaphas, and they were meeting there with the chief priests, and no doubt the scribes were there. They were the experts in the law. If anybody could find a way, according to law, that they could uh, kill Jesus, uh, they would be the ones that would know that. It also says that the elders of the people were there. They're the wealthy, the aristocratic kind of people in society. They all gathered with Caiaphas, a high priest, and they had one thing in mind. One thing in mind. Verse 4, they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. That was at one point on their agenda that evening. And the word secretly translated here is a Greek word, "dolos," which has more of a nefarious kind of meaning to it. It means doing something with guile, subtlety, deceit, to try to catch something with bait, to lure, to trap to snare. This is what they were trying to figure out. This is how, how to do that. So what, whatever conniving and scheming they were going to do, they wanted to wait at least eight days until after the Passover, until the celebrations were over and the people had gone, gone home. But they, they didn't know that Jesus just told his disciples, it's going to happen in two days. God always works out his plan. So the entire Sanhedrin, the ruling body, meets together with Caiaphas, who is a high priest. Now we need to understand something about Caiaphas. The the Jewish historian Josephus tells us his real name is Joseph Caiaphas. And one commentary describes him like this. (laughs) Pretty strong. A wretched, vile, conniving, treacherous, wicked, deceitful man, who is pictured in Scripture only in one role— he is, one dimensional, he is a one-dimensional person. Every time you see him in the Bible, he's trying to kill Jesus. He's either planning it or executing it. That's the only portraiture we have of this man. He is driven by his own ego, his own satisfaction. He has no sense of justice or righteousness or what is fair or what is good. He has no concern for the people or for anyone else except himself. That's Caiaphas, high priest, He's in charge. There was no king of Israel. He had more power than anybody else, and he wanted to get rid of Jesus. That's all we see him doing in Scripture. He was the one who carried out all the priestly functions. He, amazingly, was the only one that could go into the Holy of Holies that we uh, talked about earlier, Once, one time a year. He had to carry out all the leadership and ceremonies and sacrifices and rituals. He was in charge of everything. So he gathers them all together and they're really upset. They're, they're, they're boiling mad. This has been brewing for three years. And then all that just took place earlier in that day, there in the temple courts, when Jesus had cleared out the temple and he laid into them, exposing <clears throat> their hypocrisy publicly for, for everybody to see, pronouncing their condemnation, that was, just, that, that was the last step. That was the last straw. But the problem was, they were afraid of the people. They couldn't just assassinate him because everywhere he went, he was surrounded either by a large crowd or by all of his disciples and those that were with him. They were looking for a place in a clandestine way where they could seize him and capture him quietly, take him prisoner, and then trump up some kind of charge against him and do it all through the legal process, (laughs) as twisted and perverted as it was. That was their desire, but they needed an angle. They needed an inn somehow to get close to him. They needed a way to pull it off. And we know now, of course, that way was Judas. That was their ticket into Jesus. And he became the betrayer. So we see the scheming, hateful hearts of sinful men at work in the preparation of Christ's death. Their hatred had reached such a fever pitch that they were moving right in line with the sovereign plan of God Pull it all together. They didn't even know it. Do you realize, in a fascinating way, that grace and sin are moving towards the same end? Isn't that interesting? Usually you think of it totally separate, going in different directions. But here you've got grace in the person of God's King, Jesus Christ, planning for the cross. And sin in the person of the Jewish ruler who's plotting for the cross. Both heading in the same direction. Now that takes us to the third preparation. A very important one and really very interesting. Mostly applicable to us. It's the preparation of loving worship. The preparation of loving worship. It's found starting in verse 6. Listen. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper. Now, Wait a minute, how did he get there? I thought they were on top of Mount of Olives. He just finished teaching the disciples and he was talking uh, talking to them. Um, Well, they were. They're still there. But I believe the Holy Spirit is bringing to Matthew's mind as he's writing the accounts many years later. He's writing this account, all the things that have been happening, showing all the details, how they're all falling into place, all the preparations leading to the cross as Jesus is prepared for his imminent death. So Matthew flashes back to Saturday as he's writing, when Jesus was in Bethany, staying in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. you remember that? Just before going into Jerusalem. Now how do we know that's when it happened? Because John records the same event in chapter 12, verse 1, and he says it was six days before Passover that that happened on Saturday. So while Jesus and the disciples were there, Simon the leper invited him as a guest for a great supper in his home. Now, Simon was no longer a leper, um, but that's what he had been known as. He was a healed leper, and we know that because if he was still a leper, no one would be going to his house. This wasn't going to happen. But this was a man who wanted to show his gratitude for what Jesus had done for him. And so he prepared this meal. And he, it was a big meal. There was at least 15 or 20 people there. He had all the disciples. He had Mary, Martha, and, and Lazarus. Maybe some others that were there as well. But this was a very important occasion that Matthew, Mark, and John all write about. And we'll see the reason for that in a moment. So they're all at Simon, the former leper's home, for a beautiful evening of Thanksgiving and joy and celebration with great food. And verse 7 says A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now, I'm not sure why Matthew doesn't give us her name. Uh, John does. He tells it was Mary, the sister of Martha. And she comes with this alabaster jar with some very, very expensive perfume in it. And Mark tells us that it was worth 300 denarii, which was a whole year's wage for the common person. That's a lot of money. That's a very expensive perfume. What made Mary do that? What was the significance of that? I think there are a number of things that are going on here. First of all, I think Mary was understanding a whole lot more of what was going to take place than the disciples did. The disciples were a little bit thick here still. Um, You know, in general, I have found that women tend to be much more sensitive and spiritually aware than us guys. Sometimes you have to take a two by four and knock us up the side of the head for us to get something. But Mary has been with the disciples much of the time. And as we've mentioned, this is the fourth time Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised again. And right here in the home of Simon, he said it again very clearly, in two days, the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And I think Mary got it, whereas the disciples were still in denial. And it's interesting to note that here in Matthew, we read that she poured the perfume on his head. In John, in his account in chapter 12, he says she poured the, the perfume on his feet. Huh. An error in Scripture, right? Is there a contradiction here? No, I don't believe so at all. I think she did both. I think she did both. She started at the head and went all the way down to his feet. And the reason I say that is because in verse 12 of our passage, when Jesus was defending Mary against the grumbling of the disciples, which we're going to come to in a minute, he said, when she poured this perfume on my body. He didn't say when she poured it on his head. That that would be the normal thing. When she poured it on my head, this is the meaning of it. Or when she poured it on my feet. When she poured it on my body. My whole body, head to toe. When a person died in that time period, they didn't have that whole embalming process. And so they would cover the body in oil and perfumes and spices and herbs to help preserve the body a little longer in that heat until they actually had the burial time. And that's why Jesus says, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial I think the other thing that's significant here is that by pouring the perfume on his head, she was anointing him, whether she really realized or not, as king of kings and lord of lords. She was anointing him as the true Messiah. Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek means the anointed one. And God was using her to anoint him. And by pouring the perfume on his feet, she was acknowledging him as her master and she as his servant. In fact, in Mark's account in chapter 14, he says, she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Why? She didn't hold anything back. She was fully committed. That's the epitome of what Christ wants, isn't it? In our lives, it was an extravagant act of love on her part, an act of honor, an extravagant act of total worship of the Lord. And that's what God wants of us. No holding back. When she broke the jar, she, she, couldn't, she couldn't save any of that perfume. It was gone. Total love. How much does he want us to love him? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. He wants total honor, total worship. And that's what Mary was showing to him. Out of a heart of love for him. Well, the disciples were outraged. Verse 8, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. (laughs) Why this waste? They asked, this perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Oh, that sounds so spiritual, doesn't it? Sounds so good and worthy. Disciples, they, they missed the whole point here. This was not the time for doing good things for others. This was not the time to be busy. This was the time to focus on Jesus, to listen to Him and to worship Him. And Matthew says that the disciples were indignant, but it had to come from somewhere. It had to start somewhere. That that, that thought had to start somewhere, and we actually know where. Again, John chapter 12 tells us that Judas Iscariot, the one who is going to betray Jesus, started the murmuring. Verse 6 of John 12 says he, talking about Judas, did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, as keeper of the money bag. He was a treasurer. He used to help himself to what was put in it. He was looking at 300 denarii. But then he started sowing the discontent among the rest of the disciples, talking about it in religious kind of terms, good deed kind of terms. He's so discontent. He's so division and discord trying to get the others to go along with him with his own evil desires. Folks, God speaks very, very strongly about people who sow discontent, who sow division, who sow discord. For those who cause division or discord within a church, he's got some very strong words. Listen, this to what Paul writes to Titus as a young pastor in a church But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning them once and then twice, have nothing to do with them. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, they are self-condemned. Strong words. And then he says in Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, Now the works of the flesh, we're talking about the sinful nature, The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, absolutely. Impurity, yes. Sensuality, sure. Idolatry, yes. Sorcery, absolutely. Enmity, strife, jealousy, yes. Fits of rage, uh, rage, uh, uh, rivalries. Dissensions and divisions he's including in that list envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, says Paul, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Strong words. And Usually within the church, these divisions begin to begin by sounding religious, just like, like uh, 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 Judas was doing. But Jesus saw right through it, and he says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Verse 10, aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? Literally, why are you laying a burden on her? Why are you making her feel bad or guilty as if she's done something wrong? She, Jesus said, has done a beautiful thing to me. Then in verse 11, the poor you'll always have with you, but you will not always have me. You know, often it's easier to be busy doing good Christian stuff, isn't it? It makes us feel better. It makes us feel like we're accomplishing something. We're, we're doing something for the Lord. know we're, we're in a doing society, are we not? We find our worth in performing, in accomplishing, in producing. But God says, be still, <laughs> be still, and know that I'm God. Just sit still and worship me. Focus on me. Talk to me. Let me talk to you. When we were in West Africa as international workers, our son, I don't know if he was in first grade yet, but he, before going to bed, he always wanted to talk. And Nancy would usually be the one that would go in and sit down, and he'd talk and talk. Part of it may be an excuse of not shutting the light off too soon. But he needed to tell about his day, and he'd go in great t- detail. And this one evening, she was sitting there listening to him, and as he was talking, 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 you know, Nancy was <laughs> looking around the room, looking, you know, and he reached up and grabbed her face and turned it to him. He wanted her attention. And I think about that, and I think about God. Give me your attention. Stop looking over there. Stop doing. Stop being busy. Be still. And know that I'm God. Then Jesus explained to them in verse 12, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. He's telling them that she gets it. She gets it. She understands what is about to happen. And what she did at that moment was so significant in the eyes of Jesus that he said, Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. He says, I'm going to make sure that what she just did here, you guys are all complaining about, but what she did is so significant that I'm going to make sure that it gets into Scripture in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark and John, wherever that's preached, whenever, when anybody reads that, they're going to remember what this woman did as a memorial of her loving worship to me. And so we see the preparation of sovereign grace. We see the preparation of scheming hatred. We see the preparation of this loving worship by Mary. And then finally, and just briefly, because we don't want to dwell on this aspect, uh, we see the preparation of betraying hypocrisy. Betraying hypocrisy. Verse 14, excuse me. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, it's actually pronounced Iscariot, and it just means that it's a person from the region of (laughs) Gariot. Judas from Cariot. So Judas, Iscariot, <laughs> went to the chief priests. That would have been that same evening, Saturday evening, when they were in Bethany. Verse 15, and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. He wasn't going to get the 300 in eye from the perfume. He wanted to get something out of this. As soon as he made the deal and accepted the payment, it says he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And Luke adds that he was looking for an opportunity when no crowd was present. Again, trying to do everything in secret, off to the side. And he set that up on Saturday, and all through Monday and Tuesday, and all the teaching of Wednesday, and all the events that took place on Wednesday, Judas was there. And he was planning, he was scheming, looking for a moment when he could betray Jesus. And so while Jesus is receiving the worshipful love of Mary, the plot is beginning in Judas's mind. His motive? Money. It's money. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And by the way, he bargained for 30 pieces of silver. And according to Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, that's the price of a slave. The price of a slave. 12 ounces of silver today is worth about $289. The greatest example of lost opportunity the world has ever known. Judas Iscariot lived, heard, experienced the personal life of Jesus Christ. Let me close with this. There are really only three ways to approach Jesus Christ's death. One is hateful rejection. You can deny it. You can ignore it. You can reject it like Caiaphas and the priests and the scribes and, and the elders And much like much of the world is doing today, strongly, vehemently, rejecting it, refusing it. Or you can approach it with loving worship. As Mary did, as she sat at his feet and acknowledged him as Lord and Master. And I trust that's where we are this morning. Or you could stand with Judas as a hypocrite who claims to love but really hates. He pretended. He claimed to belong, but didn't belong. He is a hypocrite. Some hate, some love, some pretend. And the question for us is where are we in, in those three? I trust we're at that point where Mary was of loving, total, full, loving, worship, and adoration of Jesus all the time. That's when he transforms. That's when he helps us to grow. That's when he leads us and directs us in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you. The event, worldly thinking, is a horrible, horrible, horrible event. (laughs) What an amazing event in your plan, the only thing that could have been done for us whom you love, who are, were deserving of wrath, Paul tells us in Ephesians, we were deserving of wrath, but while we were still sinners, wow, Christ died for us. What love. Can't even imagine that kind of love. But Father, I pray that you would just work in our lives. And if there are areas in our lives that, that aren't right with you, Perhaps we're being a little bit hypocritical in certain areas, or or maybe there there is someone here or someone that is watching this morning that have been pretending for many years. You know, I, I've gone to church. I, I've actually become a member of a church. I'm, I'm I'm pretty good. Father, that's not enough. We need to accept Jesus Christ. So Father, I pray that you would just transform our minds to to a place where. We, you, you want us to accomplish things for You, but first You want us just to come and worship You, focus on You, and let Jesus Christ be the King, the Lord of our lives, sitting on the throne of our lives. Do a new work in us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.